Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. Nobody hates bureaucracy more than I, but unchecked authority in leaders is a disaster. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jack Welsh, be candid with everyone. My guest today, Kim Scott, is one of Silicon Valley's most respected leadership experts. She's the co-founder of two executive education firms, Radical Candor and Just Work. And she's also the New York Times bestselling author of the top two books on leadership called Radical Candor and Just Work. So it makes it very easier for her to keep track. Uh, <laughs> Kim has also previously worked as an executive at Google and a CEO coach with Dropbox. Kim has also previously worked as an executive coach at Google and a CEO coach with Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and several other leading organizations. Kim, welcome back to the Elevate podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to see you again. Yeah, it's good to physical see you this time. Uh, I think last yeah. time it was just audio. So I'm going to start with a question I've asked all my guests uh, who, who, who were on the show before 2020. Uh, and that was, what's the biggest professional adjustment you had to make uh, due to the pandemic? Well, 100% of our revenue came from doing in-person talks and workshops. <laughs> so that, that would be something <laughs> so you'd that have was to a, do. It was a big, and you know what? We actually grew. Uh, and I, you know, I think the thing that I, that I felt, you know, after I had sort of wrapped my mind around what was going on was that I was taking kind of like a 30% productivity hit, but I was getting a 60% parenting gain. Because uh, I was with my family a lot more, and, and it seemed like, I mean, I was, uh, that's from a position of privilege, obviously, yeah. but it seemed like a good uh, a good trade-off to me. Yeah, a lot of people have had to pivot, and I know a lot of people have not want to go back to the level of travel that, that they were doing before. No, I'm just not going to do it. it <laughs> It just doesn't. I think we get so much out of. And as I I talk to people who are planning conferences, and when you factor, there is a benefit to being in person. I'm not going to deny it. But when you factor in the costs of flying a hundred people to get yeah. together in person, and not just the financial costs, but the cost that that their families bear, that yeah. that their their personal lives take. Uh, it just it makes a lot of sense to do this stuff. Um, well, I've seen a lot of speakers also really adjust their rates too. Like, look, this is this is me delivering it from home, and this is me being home yeah. away from home two nights. You know, and yeah. it's yeah, and it's the a spread lot has grown. Yeah, <laughs> turns out that bath time is worth a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You have yeah. young kids. Well, we, we dug into uh, the concept of radical candor uh, in, in the first appearance on the show, and I definitely encourage people to listen to that who want uh, to get deep into that. But could you give everyone a quick refresher on the four quadrants that, that you talk about in that book? Sure. Radical candor is what happens when you're able to care personally and challenge directly at the same time. And caring and challenging hardly seems so radical that I dare to call it radical candor. And yet, everyone I've ever met struggles with feedback in their career. And so one of the things that I did to try to make it a little bit easier is to boil it down to, you know, all of life's hardest problems can be boiled down to a good two-by-two two framework. So I, here's I, I your... Love my, I love two-by-two. Two, so you have... <laughs> <laughs> here's your radical candor framework. So caring and challenging at the same time is radical candor. Sometimes we challenge directly but we forget to show that we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. So that's in the bottom right-hand quadrant. And in the first draft of the book, I call that the asshole quadrant because it seemed more, I don't know, 
yeah. radically candid. Uh, but I stopped doing that for a really important reason. I found that when I did that, people would use the radical candor two by two to start writing names in boxes. And so I beg of you, as you hear these terms, don't, don't do start, yeah, don't starting associating them with people. This is not another Myers-Briggs personality test. Use the radical candor framework to guide specific conversations with specific people to a better place. So obnoxious aggression, there's bunches of problems with obnoxious aggression. First and foremost, it hurts other people. Second of all, it's inefficient. It's you're wasting your time. Because if you're if you're acting like a jerk, you're putting the other person usually into some kind of fight or flight mode. And then they literally can't hear you. So you're wasting your breath anyway. And then there's also a more subtle problem with obnoxious aggression. I don't know about you, but when I realize that I've acted like a jerk. It's not my instinct to go the right way on the care personally dimension. Instead, it's my instinct to go the wrong way on challenge directly and say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. But it does matter. And it is a big deal. That's why I just said it. And and that's kind of the hero's journey to the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. So if if obnoxious aggression is front-stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing, it's passive-aggressive behavior, political behavior, all of the things that make work sort of intolerable. And it's fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity because that's where the drama is. So if you watch the HBO show... Uh, Silicon Looking Valley. By, yeah. If you, yeah, if you watch The Office, you're going to see a lot of episodes about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. But the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes in this last quadrant, where we it's do my remember. Favorite, yeah, where, yeah, yeah, mine too. That's why I wrote the book, where we do remember <laughs> to show that we care personally, because yeah. Despite everything we see on social media, most people are actually pretty nice people. And so we do remember to show that we care personally, but we're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings or not offending someone that we fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing in the long run. And that I call ruinous empathy. So that's the TLDR, but please do read Radical Candor. Yeah, you should write a book on ruinous empathy. I, I actually <laughs> yeah. think that's what parents struggle with uh, yes. the, the most these days. And ever since you put a label on that, I, it's been very helpful to me. You know, just a couple of thoughts on the two extremes, you know, on, on the sort of manipulative insecurity and, and obnoxious aggression. The, the damage that I've seen a lot of the PTSD from people talking to them is when someone commented on their like an attribute or character like yeah. you are not smart you're not strategic and man that stuff really stays with them for multiple jobs like it is it yeah. is something it's kind of a, a monkey on their back but then on the flip side it's just interesting a lot of times when you know you, i hear or in the past i heard that we reached sort of a uh, an impasse you know between a manager and employee and and that there's this element of surprise and I would go back and read all the performance reviews, you know, from the last twelve months. I'm like, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of surprise in here. So something's not, something's yeah. not, not landing. We actually started this, and and we use some of your work in it. But we actually started in our leadership training a difficult conversations live session where yeah. two people are given roles on either side, and and then we talk about it's law and order. It's ripped from the headlines. Like it's. You, you, I need to tell Kim that Kim's not going to make it. And Kim's in there asking for a promotion. Yeah. And you just watch these things start and everyone's dancing around and they're going yeah. for the shit sandwich. And, yeah. the, and then we actually, after like five minutes, we sort of say freeze and then everyone gives feedback. And the second time around, the person will just start the conversation and, and in more of a, and be direct. And everyone else is like, it just feels, it felt so much better as an observer. Like it was, yeah. it was cringy as an observer watching this person try to dance around. Cause what happens in the first one is inevitably we say, Hey, do you think that that person knows that their job is on the line after that conversation? And no one raises their hand as an observer to say it. Yeah. So it just feels like it's one extreme or the other. They have to yeah. personally, you know, damage someone or they dance around it so that the, the important stuff doesn't land. Yeah. I think one of the things that is really helpful is to think about feedback you want to offer. First of all, you want to make sure as a leader that you're soliciting feedback, yeah. right? Uh, don't dish it out before you prove you can take it. 
And then you also want to make sure as a leader that you're you're giving voice to the things you appreciate, the things you're grateful for, that, that you're giving more praise than criticism without giving the, the shit sandwich, as you say. It's the and, worst, but, yeah. But, I know, it is the worst. Because it's like, do you think I'm stupid? Like, <laughs> you think I can't see through what you're doing? So you got to really mean it uh, if you're going to offer praise. You don't want to sound patronizing or insincere. But I think that the other thing that when it comes to giving criticism, you want to make sure that you're thinking about context, observation, result. In the meeting, when you said, um, every third word, it made you sound stupid, is dramatically different from saying, Kim, you're too stupid to do this job. Like, that does not help me. The the point is to, to point out behaviors that can change. And the same goes for praise, by the way. In the meeting, when you offered both sides of the argument, you won credibility, is very different from saying, Kim, you're a genius, which just makes me feel like, A, I'm not, B, you don't think I am, and C, even if I were, I don't know what to do differently. Like, I don't know what to do more of. Right, and it's also a character, not an action. I heard heard a child development specialist once at a conference say, never tell a kid they're smart or not smart. Tell them something that they did is smart or not smart. Yeah, that they can do again or not do again, (laughs) right? right? That's what's helpful. So I think that is really... Uh, it's really important to remember that you you don't want to give people either praise or criticism about sort of fundamental personality attributes. It's just not helpful. And then, so that's sort of avoiding winding up in obnoxious aggression. I think also the thing about avoiding pers- sort of fundamental personality attributes, it'll also help you get avoid giving feedback that is actually not feedback, but bias, right? Uh, So so often uh, people think they're giving feedback, but what they're actually doing is offering bias or even prejudice to someone. And that's no good. That's not not legitimate feedback. That's like one of the worst forms of obnoxious aggression. Yeah, in today's environment, I'm sure that's not going to fly super well. Yeah, who knows? (laughs) Or you'll get away with it, you know. Get away yeah. with it. It's, it's surprising uh, what happens in today's environment. It's un- unpredictable. And then on the sort of on the dancing around the the problem and, and not being on the other end of the spectrum where the person just isn't saying it clearly. The thing that has helped me more than anything else, because I'm reluctant, I, I'm I'm guilty all the time of ruinous empathy. But the thing that really helps me move past my reluctance to say the thing that might sting a little bit in the moment is to remember what happens when I don't. So in the book, I tell a story about this guy Bob, and I liked Bob, and I didn't want to hurt his feelings, and I didn't say the yeah. thing, I didn't say the thing, and he wound up having to get fired as a result of me. And and that wasn't so nice after all, you know, and and just. Keeping all of us have those stories in our head, keeping those stories top of mind often will help you realize. And I think what you're doing with the role play is great, too. That's really helpful for folks. It's really interesting for them to watch and get the feedback. And what I always joke around is they have a hard time doing it when it's fake. So how are you? Yeah. I mean, really, the same emotions come out and fear yeah. when it's when it's fake. Yeah, and they know what they're supposed to do. You know, that it's very clear. It's uh, it, that's the we used to do this thing when I was at Apple, where there would be a collective manager, kind of a Borg. So twelve people at the same time were playing the role of manager, and there was one person who was an actor playing the role, and and they knew again they were supposed to tell the person this yeah. thing, and but anybody could call timeout at any time. And then the other thing was like you owned what the previous person said. So it was it was really effective. I'm curious how you think about the the framework now with this great resignation, great reshuffling that's going on. You know, as you said, like obviously feedback's important, development's important, giving people stuff that they can learn and grow. But you're in an environment now where people are very focused on retention, turnover's high. People are calling every day, telling people that they, you know, offering them a promotion and more money. And I'm sure that's kind of messing with the dynamic of, you know, you someone's like, well, I, I, you know, if they get some feedback, well, I'll just go work elsewhere. I've got six people calling me a week. And maybe they're not listening to something that's important. So how do you think this is playing out now in this very complicated, <laughs> transient job market. Yeah, I think that, that the essence of radical candor is about creating a good, productive relationship between a boss and an employee. Yeah. And we all know people join companies and they leave their boss. And so if, 
It's tempting to think that radical candor puts a risk to the relationship, but radical candor is actually the way that you improve your relationship. If you're a leader with your employees or with your peers or with your boss, or you know, you can use it at home too. It actually is quite effective. And so I think we fear that sharing this kind of feedback is going to pose a risk. Nine times out of 10, it's going to go better than you think. And the person's going to say, oh, thank you for letting me know. I mean, if you, th- if you back it up and, and use a simple example like spinach in your teeth, you yeah. know if you're having lunch with someone and they have spinach in their teeth, that the right thing to do is to tell them. Because if you don't tell them, then they're going to go to the bathroom later and see it in the mirror and think, gosh, why didn't Kim tell me about the spinach? Doesn't she care about me? And right. so if you think about radical candor as an act of caring, it's going to help people grow in their career. Then you realize that that is the, radical candor is actually the best retention tool that you have in your tool belt. And yet, so often we feel like a disagreement is going to pose a risk to our relationships. But what really poses a risk to our relationship is unspoken disagreement. That's where things build up, build up, misunderstandings get really giant, and and then they kind of blow up all over the place. But do you think it is complicated? I mean, let me give you two examples. One, again, with almost everyone I talk to dealing with that, for both the employer side or the employee side, where if I tell Kim, you know, that she's a manager and I, I, she's just not ready to be a director yet and she needs to work on these things, but the recruiter's calling Kim and saying, we got a director job for you, you know, it, that that causes, you know, a little bit of strife. And also, do you think that people are not willing to listen to valuable professional development feedback right now because they are getting called every day and offered new opportunities? My experience is that, well, so first of all, let's imagine that you give me the director job, even though you think that I'm not ready for it (laughs) because you don't want to lose me. What does that do to the 10 people who are working for me? You know, now I'm not ready for that job. I'm not ready to be a manager of managers. And then all, all of a sudden, you've, by giving me what I wanted but wasn't ready for, it hurts me in the long run. Eventually, I'm going to become aware of the fact that I'm failing. But it also hurts not only me, but all the people who work for me. This is the problem with management, is that so often people with no training, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's hard, but they get no training, they get thrown into the deep end. And if they start sinking, it's not just them who's sinking, it's their whole team that's sinking with them. So it's very, uh, if you want to retain, if you want to retain people, don't promote them prematurely. Uh, So that's number one. Yes, you know, you might lose me. You might lose me if I decide, well, you know, I am ready and I can go do it somewhere else. But it's that's not a good yeah. reason to put me – there's the Peter Principle. Have you read that book? Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not a good reason to Peter Principle, uh, your organization, to yeah. promote people beyond their level of, uh, of competence. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is that I think that – People, in my experience anyway, people do want to grow. They do want to get better. And they realize when they're in an organization and working with a a leader who really cares about their growth and who's going to take the extra effort, because it does take a little extra effort to to tell people when they're screwing up, who's going to do that for them. My experience is that people really value that. All of us, all of us have had a bad boss, and most of us have had a good boss. And when you have a bad boss, I mean, people wind up with ulcers. They wind up, they wind up not getting enough sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like a real physical harm as well as an emotional harm. And I think that people really value if you can if you can be a, a good boss. There's nothing better that you can do to retain your people than than to be a good boss. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. 
I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Do you think I saw a stat this week that said something like 70%? The first one to come out, 72% of people who left in the nine months regretted it. Um, like, do you think we're gonna see a, a boomerang in the next six to 12 months? As some people realize, oh, I had a pretty good boss. Like I maybe I didn't know what a bad one <laughs> looked like. We we might. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that struck me when uh, on my first day at Apple was that something like thirty. Per, there were about a hundred new employees that week, and something like thirty percent of them were people who were coming back yeah. to Apple. And so, I think it's really important if you have regretted attrition. I think it's important to let people know that that they can come back. And sometimes people just they need to go and do something else for a while. Uh, and you don't want to manage your team like the Hotel California. You know, <laughs> you can never check in, but you can you can check out, but you can never leave. Or, or, or the reverse of also like you know you're dead to me once you leave. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think that being a good boss uh, extends after the person leaves your team. And you said something in there too before that I think bears repeating. And, and honestly, we've struggled though this high growth organization trying to promote a lot of people, a lot of new managers, and it being a manager is the opposite of everything that makes you a good individual contributor. And I'm just not sure that new managers are on par are good managers, like even no, with the right they, training. So, yeah, it doesn't mean they're bad people, but <laughs> no. they're probably bad at their job. They're yeah, fighting instincts that they developed for years to be a top contributor and. And the reward center is very much their production and it needs to shift. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of micromanagement. And so it's always a tricky discussion of saying, look, we're trying to create a lot of new managers, but I, on par, I don't think new managers are probably not that great at it for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a guy I talked to from Venture Law Group when that was a firm. And he said, you know, management is neither taught nor valued in Silicon Valley. And I think that is changing. I think the the cost of attrition is so high, it's so hard to recruit right now. And so I think there's increasingly, there's a focus on how do we teach people how to be, This it can be taught. Management is not some sort of innate personality attribute. It's something that must be taught. But there aren't, I like to think radical candor and just work, both will help your managers get better. But there's not that many great, there, there's a lot of bad f- training about feedback. Yeah. There's a lot of, of bad training out there. So you want to make sure, first of all, don't even call it training, call it education. Like you do go, it, it comes, education Learning. comes from, yeah. The, yeah, it's to draw out, not to, you're not cramming information into someone, you're drawing out their best instincts. And you want to be really, you want to think as leaders, you want to think about what is our coherent management philosophy, you know, because it matters. Yeah, I'm curious, on balance today in the market, what do you think the average manager struggles with more, challenging directly or caring personally? 
I think challenging directly. I, I mean, this is probably a bias, but most outside most of, of Silicon Valley, it sounds like Silicon Valley is overly indexed on uh, obnoxious ad- uh, aggression, right? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, my experience at Google was there was more ruinous empathy than uh, than That's there surprising. was obnoxious aggression. Yeah, I mean, I not that there was no obnoxious aggression there. <laughs> I experienced some of that too. But I think, you know, even it's interesting, I've, I've worked with, gosh, at this point, thousands of different teams, and almost all of them feel like their struggle is ruinous empathy. Hmm. Even on Wall Street, like even in, in industries where from the outside, you're like, I don't know, maybe it's obnoxious <laughs> aggression. But they all think that the struggle is is with ruinous empathy, except one. I'll let you guess where it was. There was one uh, organization, I won't tell you the name of the organization, you can guess the industry, where they're like, yeah, our problem is obnoxious aggression. We're a bunch of assholes. The automotive, well, other than finance, I would have guessed automotive. I, no, I, I don't no, know. no. <laughs> Work with automotive companies uh, definitely ruin a sympathy. It was in entertainment. Entertain, <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes that makes sense. I, I had a bias towards. I was thinking high tech and yeah, yeah. Well, we, we alluded to this. I mean, you've obviously used this framework to coach some very influential leaders and teams and CEOs of some of the biggest companies or fastest growing. Can you share, like, without revealing a name, but like a challenge that you work with someone who they had a challenge with radical candor in their own leadership and how you helped them learn to adapt their approach? And you can come up with whatever pseudonym you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there there was there was a, a leader who I knew who really someone at some point came into his nailed on his wall, say something nice, right? <laughs> That's uh, not subtle. Yeah, no, it was not subtle. <laughs> and, you know, this was a person who was known to solicit feedback. He was good at soliciting feedback, but he kind of felt like giving praise would come off as patronizing or, in, mm. you know, and he realized that he really needed to think more. He had thought so much about criticism that he hadn't thought as deeply as he needed to think about praise and and the impact that the importance of praise and and giving voice so he learned to really think about being just as specific with his praise as he was to prepare just as much to praise as he did to criticism to make sure he knew uh, what the the details and could provide the context of why it mattered, and uh, and so I thought that was really important. There there are other. I mean, I'll tell you an example. I'll tell a story on myself, but I, a lot of other leaders have have made this same mistake. I one time in my career, and I was you know I wasn't leading like a gigantic team. It was like maybe seven hundred people. And that's pretty big for and the, both, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it, was, it wasn't, you know, tens of thousands. But anyway, the HR business partner came in and told me that I was intimidating. And I just don't think of myself as a person who's intimidating. In fact, I feel like for most of my career, I was struggling to be taken seriously. So I just kind of, I kind of brushed off the feedback that the, and the HR person, to her credit, said, look, Go into your next meeting with your team, with your direct reports, and ask them to do something impossible and just notice what happens. And I did, and nobody challenged me. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is a problem. It's Andy That's really Grove, good advice, yeah. Yeah. Andy Grove, who, when he was CEO of, of Intel, said, snow melted the periphery. And you're in the center when you're the leader. You have no idea unless you really are humble about going out there and asking people what's going on at the periphery. You will be the last to know when your business is about to go under. And so I think really focusing on what are the things you're going to do to solicit feedback and to make sure that that you're rewarding it enough that people will actually take the risk to tell you the truth. Yeah, you know what I've seen... And there's also, it's interesting, I think there's three types of people with feedback. There's um, people who are clear that they don't want it and they're not interested in it. There's people who listen, accept it, but then you see like quarter after quarter, the exact same things. And and then third bucket, they, they take it, they make a change and you never see the same thing twice. And I actually think the middle group is more dangerous. Like, because the first group you're like, you just know, but this group just keeps saying, yeah. And then you're just, 
you're, you're back on it three months later, six months later. So they're clearly, yeah. they, they don't get it <laughs> and yeah. or they're not willing to act on it, even though they acknowledge it. And to me, that's, that's worse than knowing that they're not going to do anything with it. Yeah. That's the <laughs> sort of ruinous empathy of soliciting criticism. All right, Kim. So I want to shift to your most recent book, uh, Just Work. Was there a specific moment or experience that compelled you to to write this book, particularly before Ruinous Empathy, which I still think you should write? (laughs) It's a parenting book. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. In fact, I thought about writing uh, sort of the house of radical candor. Uh, But but I decided I was, you know, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And indeed, I did. And, And the most valuable feedback I got came when I was I was giving a radical candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco, and the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, someone I like and respect enormously, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the presentation, she pulled me aside. She said, Kim, I'm excited about radical candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture that I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that the moment she would offer even the most gentle, compassionate criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said this to me, I had sort of four realizations at the same time. The first was that I had not been the kind of colleague the kind of upstander that I imagined myself to be. In fact, I had often failed to notice the extent to which she had to show up at every meeting we had ever been at together, unfailingly pleasant and cheerful and polite and calm, even though she had what to be pissed off about, as we all do in that period of time. And I hadn't stood up to that that kind of bias in, in the environment where we worked. The second thing that I realized was that I had been in denial about a bunch of stuff that had happened to me as a woman in the workplace. Kind of hard for the author of Radical Candor to come to grips with having been in denial. I was not even being candid with myself. And I think part of the reason was that I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. We have such a strange attitude towards victims in our society. And so I had pretended like a bunch of junk was not happening that was, in fact, happening. Uh, and But even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim did I ever want to think of myself as a perpetrator. So I'd been even more deeply in denial about the kinds of, of things that I had done and said that, that caused harm to the people who I worked with. That, it was never intentional, but intentions don't matter. Results do, right? Especially yeah. when you're the leader. And then the last thing I realized, the fourth thing I realized was that as a leader, I had failed to create the kinds of environments uh, in which I would stamp out bias, prejudice, and bullying so that people could just work, just in the get-it-done sense of the word, but also in the justice and the fairness sense of the word. And that was what really prompted me to sit down and unpack all of those revelations and write Just Work. So can you dive into those those three things that that you talk about? I, I'd like to kind of get a, the three that you focus on. I mean, there are, there are a lot, but you, you spotlight three, bullying, bias, and, and prejudice. So yeah. wh- why did you particularly focus on those three and how, how do they show up for most people in the workplace? I think those are kind of the root causes of so many other bigger problems. And I think one of the reasons why we fail to address these problems is that we conflate the three things as though they're one. So one of the things I, you know, I like a good framework. So so one of the things I tried to do is offer some really simple definitions. So bias is not meaning it. It's really kind of a brain hiccup. And maybe it reflects some kind of stereotype, but if if we stop and think about it, it's not a stereotype that we believe. Whereas prejudice is a very conscious belief. It's meaning it. The person actually believes that stereotype. And bullying is just being mean. And the way we respond to those, both as individuals, whether they're, they're sort of directed towards us or whether we're an upstander, is different, should be different. So um, if it's bias that you're confronting, you kind of want to respond with an I statement. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. An I statement kind of invites the other person in to understand things the way that you do. It kind of holds up a mirror. And usually people change their behavior. 
But if it's prejudice, you hold up a mirror and the person's going to smile and say, yeah, you know, I like, that's what I think. And so you need something different. You can't just respond with an I statement. In the case of prejudice, you need an it statement. And an it statement can appeal to the law, it can appeal to an HR policy, or it can appeal to common sense. So ex for example, Trier Bryant, who co-founded Just Work, the company with me, had had a situation where she was in a hiring meeting and everyone agreed that the most qualified candidate was a black woman who had worn her hair out naturally and in the meeting. And the hiring manager said, well, I'm not going to extend that candidate the offer because I'm not going to put that here in front of the business. It's wow. sort of shocking. But so what's an it statement in that? You know, it is illegal, which it is in California and New York and 11 other states, not to hire someone because of their hair. Or it is an HR violation, which it was at that company, not to hire someone because of their hair. Or it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. Rather rather than you, right? Rather yeah. than personalizing it. Yeah, yeah. And also just an it statement kind of shows where the line is between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but they can't impose their beliefs on others. And every organization is going to draw that line in kind of a different place. So it's useful as if you're the leader to sort of come up with a code of conduct that explains where that line is. That's why having an HR policy is helpful. It, it allows people to appeal to that sort of boundary. But in the case of bullying, there's no belief, conscious or unconscious, going on. Uh, the person is just trying to be mean. And they're a you statement. So if an I statement kind of draws someone, invites someone in, a you statement pushes them away. And my daughter actually taught me this in third grade when she was she was getting bullied. And I, I was encouraging her, as adults often do in such a case, to use an I statement. I feel sad when you blah, 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 blah. My daughter kind of banged her fist on the table and she said, Mom... They are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? And I thought, that's a really good point. <laughs> and so a use, you know, you can't talk to me like that or, or what's going on for you here? A use statement all of a sudden puts you in, the, in an active role. You're not submitting to this other person's yeah. behavior. Uh, and it, it kind of pushes that bully away a little bit. Prejudice is interesting because I think we, we all have prejudice, right? Yeah. If, and if you hired, I would say, like, let's just say if you hired four people from a certain school in a row and they all failed, you are then probably going to prejudge the next. I think people forget what it means. Yeah. You know, you're going yeah. to prejudge the next person from that school and you because you have this small data point, right? Yeah. I mean, because there's there's a wide range. I I, I do think that is important sometimes to just understand why someone may have that, where it comes from. Not that it's okay, but you can see why you say, look, I'm just not going to hire for anyone from that school. We've had, yeah. you know, <laughs> bad luck with that school. And then this person's totally detached from the last four people. Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, the looking at schools is uh, having gotten a lot of unfair, undue credit because of the schools where right. I went. I just, you were prejudged positively. Yeah, right? I was prejudged yeah. positively. <laughs> I, I am increasingly inclined just to like strip the education out of resumes because yeah. I think it's so, our, our educational system is so broken. What makes it tough to address these issues, I, I guess, is that one of the things is they're often kind of unintentional. So, so how does a leader get an objective sense of whether they are doing any of these things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I recommend is is actually hiring a bias buster. Uh, so when I was writing the book, I knew that even though I cared about these issues and I was trying very hard, I was going to mess up. I was going to mess up. So I hired someone to actually read the book and appoint them out to me. And I will warn you that even if you really care about it, you're probably going to feel a little defensive when you get this feedback because it's really difficult. This is like the challenge network I've heard Adam Grant and yeah, and, yeah talk about. Okay, Tim yeah, Ferriss. Yeah. Exactly. But you want to make sure that you're not what, – what often happens is – uh, in organizations is that folks who are underrepresented get asked to do this for free. So don't do that. Like if you're a leader and you can pay someone, pay someone to do it. So 
uh, I, I hired someone named Breeze Harper, who's great if you want someone to do this work for you. She's fantastic. And she pointed out kind of eight words that I tend to use that that were sloppy, basically. And my my initial instinct was, ah, there's no word that's safe in the English language. <laughs> then I'm like, okay, that's eight words. There's like, I don't know, 250,000 words in the English language. Like, 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 you would use these eight repeatedly. Yeah, repeatedly. So like one example is sloppy sight metaphors. So instead of saying I understand, I would write I see. And I understood this. In particular, this one hit home to me because another one of the people who is helping me edit the book is Zach Shore, who's one of the clearest thinkers I've ever met and who is blind. And so the last thing in the world I wanted to be doing uh, in general, because words matter to me, and I don't want to use yeah. sloppy sight metaphors, but in particular, because I care about Zach, I didn't want to use these sloppy sight metaphors. So I, I thought I got it. I thought I understood. And then right before I turned the book into my editor, I decided I would do a quick, you know, search. Guess how many times I had, even after I was aware of the problem, used sloppy sight metaphors in a 350-page book? 40? 99, 99 times. <laughs> One was, shy of 100. Yeah, yeah, it was really shocking. And so one of the things that Trier and I do when we go in and work with leadership teams is we, we get them to disrupt bias, to come up with like a process with their team to disrupt bias. And there's three parts to this, uh, this method. The first is to come up with a shared vocabulary. What is the word or phrase that your team will use when they notice something biased? So Trier and I like to wave a purple flag. I've got one right here. Uh, <laughs> when we notice something biased that's, that someone said or did, and, or that we ourselves, like if I catch myself in a sloppy sight metaphor, I'll wave a flag at myself. But it's not, I don't recommend just adopting the purple flag. You got to figure out what, what's the thing that'll work for your team. One team that we work with throws up a peace sign. Another team says, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. Another team says, ouch. Right, that is a safe way to flag that, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's dangerous to call it safe because it's never going to feel safe. Safer. But it's like, <laughs> it's a shared vocabulary, yeah. we'll say. And uh, yeah, safer. You're, it's it's going to help build stamina to move yeah. through this discomfort. It's not going to make it comfortable, but it's going to help with the stamina to move through the discomfort. So that's number one. The second thing is to teach people how to respond when their bias is being flagged. Because I don't know about you, but when someone flags my bias, I feel ashamed. I feel often deeply ashamed. I can tell you how it feels physically. Like I get a tingling in the back of my knees, the same sensation as if my kids walk too close to the edge of a precipice. You know, right. I feel afraid and, and profoundly afraid. And we rarely, that kind of puts me in a fight or flight. Uh, my lizard brain is now engaged. And, and I'm rarely at my best uh, when my, I'm never at my best. In fact, I'll go so far as to say when my lizard brain is engaged. So teaching people to move through that sensation of shame is really important. And, and that, this is where I usually don't like to, to recommend that you come up with scripts, but this is where having an expected thing to say when you're in this situation can be helpful. Thanks for pointing it out. I get it. Or thanks for pointing it out. I don't quite get it. Because sometimes I don't know what I've done wrong. And now I'm doubly ashamed. I'm ashamed because I harm someone and I'm ashamed because I'm ignorant. And yeah. so you want to you want to teach people that this is going to happen. It's going to happen to all of us. It doesn't mean we're horrible human beings. It just means we're all learning together. And so just to move through that moment and then say, can we talk about it after the meeting? Because you don't, if you're going to flag, the third thing is a shared commitment to flagging bias at least once in every meeting. And if you're going to do this once in every meeting, you don't want every meeting you have to be about bias. I mean, the, the promise of just work is that you're going to get shit done fast and fair. Uh, you know, so you don't want to spend too much time talking about it in the meeting, but you want to disrupt it. In general, the, sometimes people don't people are uncomfortable with this bias disruptors because it feels like public criticism. But if we remain silent about bias, then we reinforce the pattern. And we're pattern makers as human beings, but we can we're also pattern changers. And if we want to get to a better pattern, we gotta we gotta be willing to disrupt the bias publicly. 
When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So as you say this, there's something that's interesting. So I, I spoke at a conference a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about aspects of high-performing culture and and certain things of leadership. And and the head of HR for one of the companies came up to me after and and was sort of diving into some issues and that really company with a great culture, but felt they had some core issues with with some leaders who weren't doing a great job. And and what I realized in that discussion, and I've had elsewhere, and so I started writing an article on it today, so it's top of mind, is that if you think about someone's top five at a company, their scorecard, right? For leader, like leading is one of those things. Like we have an yeah. LMA, like lead, manage, and hold accountable. Yeah. But the amount of leaders who are not evaluated for their leadership ability, yeah. Yeah. I, I think is like this massive hole in organizations. And I think that's why you have some of these bullies or otherwise, or because their their team's hitting their goal. Everyone hates the person and they're miserable. There's no 360. There's no one asking really saying like, is this person doing a good job leading? And then I had a couple of subsequent conversations after I'm like, people aren't managing leaders for leadership. Like it seems like a it's huge remarkable. Mess. It's yeah. yeah, it seems so obvious, but I think you're exactly right. Uh, so they're not measuring it. And if they... Which they'd have to ask their team, like, do you like working for Kim? Is Kim a yeah. good leader? Like, yeah. like and my my team would have to have enough confidence that right. they would not get punished for saying actually Kim's a disastrous leader. Yeah. You know, they, that not only would they not get punished, they would get rewarded. And that's so one of the things that I talk a lot about in the book, just work, and that Trier and I work with with leadership teams on is creating checks and balances. So not only do you need in order to hold leaders account, leaders have power. They, yeah. You know, they don't have unlimited power, but they have some power. And in order to hold them accountable, they can't be making unilateral decisions. So if I make unilateral hiring decisions, I'm not going to make as good decisions. So I'm going to hire a worse team, but I also am going to I can get away with doing with bullying people who are interviewing, for example, in a way that I wouldn't be able to get away with if there were a proper yeah. panel of a, an interview committee or whatever. So nobody hates bureaucracy more than I, but unchecked authority in leaders is a disaster. There's a great book that I just finished this morning called Corruptible, and uh, and he's talking more about dictators, but, but checks and balances apply not only to governments, they apply to companies, to corporate governance. And in fact, I was talking to, uh, to an investor in Silicon Valley just also this morning about how to, he, he said, when I'm the chair of the board, how do I, what's the check on me? Right. How do we create checks? And what if I'm the problem? And that's a leader who I am. There are very few board chairs who ask that question. Right. So, uh, so hats off to him for asking that question. Well, well, here's here. I mean, here's a tangible example. And I think by focusing too much on the metrics and not the how, like, so let's just say super simple. There's a sales team. They have a goal of a million dollars with a sales leader and a sales leader ostensibly should not be selling. They should be leading salespeople. They're four reps. They have a 240 K, you know, each. Well, like they hit the million bucks, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the year, and and you'd say, great, everyone. But if you dig into that, one of the reps did five hundred, you know, yeah. and was not promoted. The other three yeah. didn't make quota. The leader stepped in, sold everything for them, and the three of them yeah. are looking for new jobs because they hate the per like. That's a really different story than 
team hit their goal. And that yes. just seems like most companies, I mean, I had a, I had a, a friend who, who, you know, had a extremely toxic leader and I try to be like, try to understand what are the checks and balances in this company? Like how, if everyone on the team is looking for a new job, why isn't that person, how come no one knows that? And they're like, they're getting good results. Like they manage yeah. up well. And, yeah. and yet every single person on this person's team was terrified of them and, and wanted to leave. Yeah, no, I think this is really important, in particular in these high growth companies, uh, all manner of, you know, success is a good deodorant, I think is, the, is, uh, is another way to put it. But you also want to make sure that even when you are trying to dig in, so let's say that you're going to offer an employee engagement survey. And very often managers who have team, let's say there's a manager who has a team, five people, Two of them are, are, he's in the process or she's in the process of managing out. Yeah. And their employee engagement survey results are not going to look very good. Yeah. Like you got to, is important. Yeah, yeah. You cannot, you cannot manage, you got to look at the numbers, but you've got to, right. you've got to do more than look at the, at the numbers. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. This is another common management mistake. I remember there was one, there was one leader I was coaching. And he was looking at the employee engagement survey results. And he's like, oh, this manager, you know, is one of the best. According to this, I didn't even know this person. And they're the best manager on my team. I'm like, you do not know that. that." And and he was like, I got to give this person a promotion. I'm like, can you dig in first? And gave the person a promotion. And then it turned out this person was disastrous and and then it made it very hard to fire the person but what was it what were they looking at in that case that made them think they were so good was it just results the results were good but the the team this team loved the person but huh. the team loved the person because they the were person, easy on them <laughs> yeah 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 exactly not because they were doing the things that a good manager does so you've got to really make sure that you're that you're measuring what matters, but also that you're aware of the measurement problem. Like very often the things that we, in fact, I wrote a whole novel called The Measurement Problem, which is about the fact that capitalism is really good at rewarding what it can measure, but very bad at rewarding what it values. And very often these leadership attributes are things we value that are really, really difficult to measure. And so I'm not saying don't measure anything, but right. you've got to you got to go a step further. You got to really understand uh, what's going on. Yeah, I've seen. I think it shows up at ruinous empathy, but I have seen feedback in three hundred and sixty feedback, which is I love Kim. Kim has my back, like she is whatever. But I'm not learning anything from Kim. Kim doesn't yeah. push me. I'm yeah. stagnating in my job. Like yeah. and, and right that both of those data sets are are you need them together to understand yeah. the the true picture. Yeah. There. Yeah. And usually I find what's helpful is to have sort of speak truth to power meetings, which is where where a leader of an organization talks to the direct reports of their direct yeah. reports without the... Skip, it's it, the skip level. Yeah, skip yeah. level. A skip level sounds so... I try to avoid hierarchical <laughs> language, but it's... I mean, hierarchy is a fact of... It's just for management. people because they've heard yeah. that term before. You're but right. Yeah. Skip yeah. level. Skip level meetings. All right. So look, you, you you've you've written a lot about uh, leadership, but you've also published multiple novels as well. Like, how, is it easy to go back and forth between fiction? I think you said your next book is a is a novel, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my whole business career was really a gigantic plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a tr- that is the truth. So I've written these three unpublished novels. This one, I'm the new one I'm working on. I'm optimistic is actually going to get published. I lo- Are they business-oriented or not at all? It's going to fix everything in Silicon Valley. All okay. the bad guys are going to get badly punished um, or bad people. Not all of them are guys. Uh, and and it's gonna. I'm going to create justice uh, in a fictional world in a way that I think would be difficult. One of the things about just work is people are like, what are the companies where this is all – going perfectly. And and there's, I think I have to imagine one. It's got to be. And sometimes if you can imagine it, you can make it happen. I mean, this is Silicon Valley where we dream things and then we make those, turn those dreams into reality. So there's a lesson, there's a moral in your novel, right? Yes, there's a definite, it's a novel of ideas for sure. Are they all related to business or have you written any totally not related? 
Not oh, a lot of them are not related. So okay. the first book I I wrote actually it, it's more relevant now than it has been a while. It's called the measurement problem. I just mentioned it, and it's about uh, it takes place in in Moscow, and it's a it's a critique of capitalism, but explored through the lens of a woman who falls in love with two people at once. One is a sort of American humanitarian aid worker, and the other is a Russian entrepreneur. It's relevant, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that one, I, I mean, I guess it was kind of about one of the characters is an entrepreneur, but but it was really it's sort of about getting corruption out of out of a system. Actually, uh, the next one is called the House Husband. Also, not about not about business. Uh, and then the next one is called Virtual Love, and that's that's sort of a novel in which the main character is putting the things that she learned as a manager into her love life. So, so how, uh, how the things you learn at work can help you get out of a bad romance and into a happy, uh, happy situation. Performance reviews, better performance yeah, yeah, reviews. Yeah, 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 exactly. Goal setting. Radical candor works at home. Uh, we'll put it that way. So I usually like to end in with, um, and, and you've done so much writing, sort of what's something that you've learned from. I'm, I'm curious now, Going back to Radical Candor, it's been how many years since the book came out? Is it three or four? 2017, yeah. 2017, yeah. We, we lost sort of two years there. In yeah. The, the abyss. yeah. What's the missing chapter if you were writing that book now that, that, that you would have included? You know, I think it's not just a missing chapter. It's like the whole missing book. I think <laughs> that that's what just work is. I think so much of what happens is, is around power and the problems of power. And, and I touched on it kind of lightly in Radical Candor, but very often, especially people who have too much unchecked authority are apt to give what they think is Radical Candor, but what is actually bias or prejudice or bullying. And, and I think the thing that is probably missing from both Radical Candor and Just Work is the problem not just a power, but the in particular the problem of money, and too much, you know, the the kind of one percent problem, and you know, I think Google, for example, was really pretty good at creating these systems that that offered checks and balances, but Google didn't, and probably it would have been hard for Google to do, but they didn't make any effort really at all to to put financial checks and balances. Like people got super, super, super rich. And there was a there was a moment in time when my husband was working at Google and I was working at a at Dropbox and we both had employees who were living in their trucks. And like that no one should live in their trucks. But especially you know, it, it just it was striking that the the gap between the CEO's pay and the new employees' pay was so extreme in these companies, uh, and so I think I'm going to wrestle more with that in the in the novel. I mean, you can address that. I mean, a lot of the geopolitical we've yes. been embracing dictators and dictators yes, who have. Yeah. have all yes people around them, mostly yes men, but yes people, you know, yeah. around them, and that's I think that's why you see some of the behavior that we the have. The horrors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, American Klep, if you want to read a couple of great books, American Kleptocracy and Russia's Crony Capitalism make a make good. American Kleptocracy. That's a good title. Yeah, it is. It's a great, it's a great book too. That's catchy. All right, Kim, well, where can people find more uh, about you and your work and your books? Find more at justworktogether.com is the Just Work website. And you can follow uh, at Just Work Book on Twitter, or you can follow me at Kimball Scott. And RadicalCanner.com also has stuff on Radical Canner. So we'd love to keep in touch with folks. And buy the books wherever you buy books. Wherever they're sold, which these days is usually on- online. It's hard. It, it, moving books around the world right now is, 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 is complicated. Yeah. The logistics yeah. are... Are, are struggling well but your local bookstore would love your patronage so yes. if you have time go in and get it otherwise you can get it on amazon and or they Barnes should be Noble they should or, be open now at least for the yeah. next few months yeah all right well kim thank you for uh joining us it's always great to talk to you and i'm i'm, I'm when you write the ruinous empathy parenting book we're gonna have you on we're gonna all right <laughs> we're, we're gonna talk about that all right we're gonna we're gonna do it and i'm eager to hear more about your novel <laughs> thank you i will i will share it with you 
All right. Well, you can learn more about Kim uh, on the episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks for joining us today. And if you enjoyed the episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps you new users discover the show. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom of your review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.